0: Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And again, this is page 872 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal. This is questions 1 and 2. Let's read these responsibly. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Amen. That is God's word summarized. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for his help. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners conceived and born in sin and unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and we seek your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, Satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth. That we, with all our hearts, may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. Amen. What we see here in Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism, The first and second questions and answers. And we're going to be spending our time tonight looking at question one. But I want to point out, in case you have not noticed this before, that question two gives us the structure of the catechism. It is like the table of contents for the whole catechism. You have to know three things to live and die in the joy of this comfort. And those three things are guilt, grace, and gratitude. You have to know the greatness of your sin and misery. And you have to know that if the grace of God in Jesus Christ is to have any impact on you. To know that the debt was severely stacked against you and Christ has gotten totally rid of it. Then you have to know that your own, the only proper response to such an act of grace is a life of gratitude. How I am to thank God for such deliverance. And so the catechism has been just wonderfully structured for memorization... And that is a key question that sometimes we don't spend a whole lot of time looking at because the rest of the catechism unpacks it for us. But I want to point that out to you. The question two is, uh, it's like the, the, uh, the map's key. shows you where you're headed and uh, what this all symbolizes and the major headings and so forth. But that first question, question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, it teaches us, That spiritual comfort is found in belonging. And if you think about it, that's a really remarkable way to start a confession of faith. It's a remarkable way to start a catechism that we are to teach to new converts and to teach to our children. That comfort, true spiritual comfort, that is meant to be there for you in body and soul, in life and in death, Is in belonging to a faithful Savior. That is the kind of thing that is relevant in every age. Because no one can sustain a healthy life without being a part of something, belonging to something. We all long to belong, we want to be tied to something that's bigger, greater than us, some other group, some other person that can bring us along. We can ride their coattails. And without that sense of belonging, we flounder. You see this in all kinds of ordinary ways, natural, non-spiritual ways. You have a job in an ordinary secular company, and if you somehow find yourself to be the odd man or the odd woman out in your team, you flounder in the job. This is how life works. How much more so than when it comes to these grand spiritual realities. Today we open again to those old words that so many saints before us have memorized and recited through their lives and recited on their deathbeds. What is your only comfort? In life and here now at death. I'm not my own. I belong, body and soul, life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In this message tonight, we're going to see three things that this belonging means for the believer. Three things that it means for the believer. It means that the Lord owns you, and that he delivers you, and that he assures you. First then, belonging means that the Lord owns you. He owns you. We read earlier from Leviticus chapter 26. Listen again to God's promise to his people that we find in verse 11 and following. He says, I will make my dwelling among you. Literally, he says, I will make my tabernacle among you, which literally happened is set up the tent on God's command so that he would make his dwelling place with them. And God goes on to say, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be My people. When you're in the promised land, God says here, when you are there, I'll be there too. I will be there with you and you will be my people. This is what he says to a ragtag group of former slaves who had very recently belonged to Pharaoh. They belonged to Pharaoh, and they don't belong to him anymore. They belong to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A transaction has taken place. Chains have been taken off their hands and feet, so to speak, and they have now been purchased by someone else. God owns them, and they have become his. That's what belonging means. You belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ, your faithful Savior. Just like the Israelites of old belonged to their God. And at the center of God's promises, and he makes an awful lot of promises in the Bible, but central to them is that we are his people. We belong. We are his possession. Kids, I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you thought you couldn't handle it. You're in some kind of situation and you just thought, I'm not going to make it through this. I cannot do this. Maybe it was some project that got assigned to you and it seemed too difficult, didn't understand it. it It's too big. Maybe you got nervous before a big competition. We've all been there. What helps you, kids, in moments of nervousness like that? A lot of times, it helps just to know that mom and dad are just there. They're just there. They say, it's okay, we're going to be right here the whole time. You're going to get through this. Project will get done. Bit by bit, you'll get through this. Competition will be over with. You're still my son, you're still my daughter at the end of it, no matter the outcome. That's the comfort of belonging to God. It is to know that he is with you, dwells among you, because you belong to him. He bought you, and you're his. It's cut and dry. The transaction was made. He laid down the payment, and he has done so through the blood of his own son. Brothers and sisters, if he was there for the Israelites... In Canaan, is He not with His New Covenant church? Hasn't He given us His Son? Has He not poured out His Holy Spirit? In the book of Revelation, John sees that in the churches of the New Covenant, the spiritual reality in all the churches is that Jesus Christ walks among the churches. Just as God said He would walk among them in Canaan. These are the warnings that John gives to individual churches. He says, Don't forget your first love. Christ walks among you. You can't hide from him. It's a warning to those who are going flying off into uh, disobedience and false teaching and so forth. But to the believer who is striving for a faith-filled, obedient life, it is the greatest of all comforts to know that God, through his son, walks. Among the churches. He is with us. To remind us that we belong to Him. Paul says in Romans 14 verse 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live. Or whether we die. We are the Lord's. Body and soul. Life and in death. You belong to your faithful Savior Jesus Christ. No matter the. Circumstance covers the whole, the whole spectrum of your life. He owns you, and you are his favored possession. Secondly, though, belonging also means that the Lord delivers you. The Catechism not only teaches us that we belong to Christ as his possession, it tells us how this came about. He delivers. He delivers. He makes us his own possession because he's rescued us from hell. He rescues sinners from eternal fire. He plucks us out of the fire, as it were. And he has delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. Whose job it is to give us a foretaste of hell here on earth. Scripture depicts the devil and all demons as the worst of tyrants, oppressors, manipulators. In Luke chapter 4, we read the account of the demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Capernaum. It is a very upsetting story when you put yourself into the scene. People have gathered this day on the Sabbath... In a local synagogue, and they've gathered to pray, they've gathered to sing, they've gathered to open the scrolls of the Old Testament and have one of the elders um, or rabbis teach from those Old Testament scrolls. And on this particular Sabbath, Jesus is teaching. But in the middle of the service, a man screams. Screams. And he screams because he's under the control of a demon who has now come into this worship service. There's, uh, there's all kinds of evidence that during this time period, during the in-between times when the last prophet of the Old Testament before John the Baptist came, the last prophet died and there was no more new word from the Lord for so many generations That many of the Jewish people were led astray into sorcery and witchcraft, dabbling in all kinds of demonic things. That accounts for such awful scenes like this one in the synagogue in Capernaum. That a Jewish man who ought to know the oracles and the word of God and ought to belong to the covenants of God has somehow got himself possessed by a demon and has brought this demon into A service of worship. I think we can safely imagine that scenes like this happen from time to time. If not in synagogues specifically, then elsewhere in Israelite villages. But on this occasion, it occurs in the presence of Jesus Christ. He's in the synagogue teaching that day. And Christ Jesus delivers from such tyranny. With a word, he drives the demon out. We just saw this morning in our morning service, the the power of God's word, and that same power is present in the words of Jesus Christ. And this demonstration of power is so amazing to the worshipers there in the synagogue. They say, what is this word? It comes now with authority and with power. He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. We've never seen this before. At, the, at this point, Jewish exorcists were a thing. And uh, whatever their success rate was, it never happened like this. Not with a word. But this demon had met his match. These and all kinds of other passages in the Bible, they, they teach us, at least first, that the devil is a formidable enemy. Uh, we, we just recognized this at the end of the catechism at the end of last year. We cannot stand on our own for a moment, the catechism teaches us to pray. But our enemies, the world, the devil and the flesh never stop attacking us. And brothers and sisters, the devil and his demons never stop attacking. Those who do not yet believe must come to terms with this fact. That... The devil is not only their enemy, we share that in common, but he is also their master. And he has blinded them. And they have no other hope than to look for Christ in order for the scales to fall off their eyes and to see spiritually. The devil blinds the eyes of unbelievers and he hardens their hearts and he tempts them to continue to Blaspheme God and to look away from Christ to look to themselves. The devil knows also how to get believers off track as well. He knows how to trip us up, he knows how to make the things of the world look more important and better than the things of the kingdom. We are taught by the Lord Jesus to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the other things we need will be gathered unto us and added unto us. The devil says the opposite. He he tries to teach us that we'll attain the glory of the kingdom through little earthly things. And before we know it, we are in love with the things of the world, lust of the heart, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life as 1 John teaches us. The devil knows that we are inclined to indulge ourselves to creature comforts, which are not, you know, don't, don't hear me wrong on this. Ordinary creature comforts, the things that make us comfortable in life are not evil in and of themselves. What I'm saying is that the devil knows that we tend to indulge in creature comforts frequently, thoughtlessly, and thanklessly, and that just a little nudge will help us to forget that true comfort is found in Jesus Christ. And that true comfort is found in the word of the gospel. And when we do sin, when there is success on the part of the devil and his demons, and we do sin, the same demons who cheered us on as we ran headlong into that sin, then heap unbearable guilt upon us. It is awful spiritual manipulation and oppression. It is tyranny. And Jesus Christ delivers us from this tyranny. They don't stand a chance in the presence of Christ. The devil is chief among demons. But Martin Luther taught us to sing, One little word shall fell him. One word from the mouth of the returning Jesus Christ will end the empire of Satan and his Antichrist. He will breathe out his Holy Spirit, and it's over. It's over. It is that word of deliverance, brothers and sisters, the word of the gospel that comes down from heaven through your Savior that you might learn to say in the midst of temptation, be silent. Be silent. So, dear brothers and sisters, let this be your spiritual consolation today. That though the devil is indeed your enemy, he is not your master. You have been delivered from the guilt of sin and the power of sin and the tyranny of the devil. And when the devil tempts you and you feel like you've got no other choice, put the lie away and remember He is not your master. You're under new ownership. And so let Christ's words come to your aid against your enemy. Because the Lord is your deliverer. Finally, this evening, belonging means that the Lord assures you. We read from Job earlier, and again, this is a man who loses everything, is a great test of his faith. He's undergoing incredible suffering. Job 23, we find a man that is in anguish because it feels like in the midst of suffering, to add insult to injury, God is not accessible to him. That's what it seems like. Job says in verse 8, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there and backward, and I do not perceive him. Verse 15, therefore, I'm terrified at his presence. And when I consider, I am in dread of him. This is a man who has lost the sense that God was still holding him, which he was. The end of that book tells us the full story. God was still holding him, upholding this righteous man in his own righteousness. But to Job, it did not seem to him that he was belonging to his Savior. He couldn't see it with the eyes of faith. And so His assurance waned. But loved ones, in the Gospel, we learn that the same Christ who has purchased and delivered you also assures you of eternal life. He walks among us by His Holy Spirit so that we might learn daily to lean on Him. That in our weakness... He is made to be strong, not just that we say it, but that we begin to experience it, that in our weakness, he is strong and therefore assuring us that all things work together for our salvation. Even Job like suffering works together for our salvation. This same Lord Jesus Christ assures you by his Holy Spirit of eternal life and that you are secure forever. These are the comforts of belonging, brothers and sisters. Your assurance is not up to you. You are not your own. You're not your own. If you were your own anymore, assurance would be totally up to you. Get to work so that you don't wane in your faith anymore. But you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Your assurance is not up to how things are in the world or how things are in the church. Those things have gone up and down for many generations now. They will see highs and lows. Your assurance is in your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful Father, we ask you to give us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given us and to instruct our children in your knowledge and fear until they've reached complete maturity. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.